Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. Best day of the week. It's Monday. Ari Wasserman is here. The best day of the week, by the way, is moving to Friday in a couple of weeks because remember, games will be starting very, very soon. And once week zero hits, we'll have a show for you reacting to the games coming out Sunday morning. That's your make your breakfast show and send me your pictures of your breakfast. And then Ari moves to Friday and that's when we start taking bets. That's when we have... uh, well, we, we've got to figure it out, Ari, what, what our UCLA plus 15 bet is going to be. I do like that I have to be your butler for a day. Very 80 sitcom-esque. Yeah, it would be great. And I, it, I don't even know uh, if butler would be the right word, but just a, a mentor for life the day coach? on how to do things. Life coach. Um, we could do everything from how to swaddle a baby to uh, how to reshingle my roof. Oh, okay. How much do you think yeah, we get accomplished? I've not, I've not done any roofing. I, I grew up in Florida. <laughs> I, I, that, I stayed off the roof for a reason. Uh, the swaddling the baby. Have you seen them wrap your burrito at Chipotle? Yes. Very similar. Very similar concept. So, because I've always wondered how they possibly can do that. I think it's an art to be able to wrap a burrito the right way. And I know they do well, it every single day. You, you but, will, you know, you will you, understand it much better when you're swaddling that baby because. With the, the tighter you swaddle, the better they, they nap. So it's, you got to create that cocoon effect. You know that they have um, automatic swaddlers now. Uh, so we borrowed a bassinet. And let's, we'll Your get to football here in a so second. But soft. We, we <laughs> borrowed a bassinet where you can, there's an attachment where you basically just put the baby in a little bit of a baby outfit. And then it has like a mechanism where it swaddles it for you. Just like so that automatic like when, bed maker. When they, when they recreate Mila Jovovich from one strand of DNA in the fifth element and the automatic bandages come over to hit just the strategic places they needed to hit so it was still a PG-13 movie, that's basically what it is? <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. And I, I, I'm okay with uh, being soft. I, soft and convenient. That's my motto. <laughs> We're going to get that stitched on a pillow, on a throw pillow. One of the 19 throw pillows that's on your, on your bed is going to say soft and convenient. Yeah, I might tattoo that on my body. Well, actually, you know, I, I was thinking about this. I've, ta- I've talked to some other podcasters, and one thing that we don't have here at the Andy Staples Show and Friends is a t-shirt business because a lot of other podcasters are doing booming business with t-shirts. So... I think our first T-shirt should just say "soft and convenient." <laughs> I think it would. Who sell. wouldn't buy that? <laughs> Ass, soft and convenient. <laughs> I love it. It's perfect. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's all about branding. So we gotta we gotta get a good design there. But I think we're onto something there. So we've got a couple things we need to talk about in this show. There was a big Friday news. It wasn't a news dump. It was a news get by uh, our intrepid reporters at the Athletic. But a very interesting story coming out of the ACC, the Big Ten, and the Pac-12, and just those, by the way, kind of their response to the SEC is to create some sort of alliance. And I don't know if this is like when when you watch Survivor and the, the competitors form an alliance and then stab each other in the back within two weeks. 
are they going to do a scheduling alliance? Are they going to do, you know, is there some sort of practical thing they're going to do where they're going to set up non-conference games against each other, which, by the way, could be very valuable for, for some of them. Or is it they're going to vote as a block to, to not let the SEC get, get its way, I suppose? But that's kind of weird because if you look historically, the ACC's needs have aligned more with the SECs and, and not the Big Ten and the Pac-12. It, it, it's very odd how all that came to, to be. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's like funny to, to think about how this might look at the end of the road. Um, but it's just, to me, which conference in, in this alliance do you think needs it the most? Like oh, my, it's, the first the Pac-12. That, it's the Pac-12. Because yeah. the first thing I thought when I, when I saw this and, and I read Max Olson's reporting was, what does the Big Ten gain from this? They already have pretty good schedules, you know, non-conference schedules. Their conference has a few really big brand powers in terms of television revenue. I mean, you already have an Ohio State, Oregon non-conference home and home. Uh, mm-hmm. What is it that the Big Ten gains from being a part of this, in your opinion? I'm not entirely sure. I think the ACC and the Pac-12 gain a lot more, and the Pac-12 gains the most. Let me throw some numbers at you, Ari. I started working on this, and it's kind of a long story of how it got started, and I'm not going to give away the beginning of it because there's actually another column in that, too. But basically, I started compiling TV ratings data at the end of last week, and by the time I was done, I had five years' worth of TV ratings data, and I called around a little bit because I was trying to interpret it. And basically, I was told... You know, average viewers per team doesn't really help you that much because it kind of depends on where, you know, what time slot they're in, what network they're on, what they're up against, that sort of thing. What I was told matters is super premium games. And by super premium, they're a big audience. And so I said, where's the cut line for the audience? And, and somebody very, very wise in the ways of television told me it's 4 million viewers. If you can break 4 million viewers, that's the, the premium product that networks are willing to pay extra for. So let me let me throw these numbers at you. There may be an accompanying story you can read in The Athletic as you listen to this on Monday morning, but I don't know yet because I, I'm still working on the story. But this is this is really interesting stuff. And if not, if you if it's not out Monday, it'll be out later this week. But I'll throw some of these numbers at you. So there were in in I did 2015 through 2019 because the pandemic year was so weird in every way that I don't want the numbers to skew the data. I wanted the, the most normal seasons to, to look at. So there are 198 telecasts that went over 4 million viewers. Now, five of those were split telecasts where, uh, you know, a percentage of the country gets this game on ABC and the other percentage gets this game on ABC. And if you want to watch the other game, then you go to ESPN2. So I didn't count those because you, you don't know who to give the credit to really. So that, that leaves us with 193 games. 55 of those games were SEC only. 49 of those games were Big Ten only. 13 of those games were ACC only. 12 of those games were Big 12 only. Five were Pac 12 only. So now there were out of conference games that these schools were involved in that, that beef up their numbers. But 55 SEC games, 49 Big Ten games, five Pac-12 games. Five. I, am, I knew that the Pac-12 was going to be low, but that is an astounding number. Okay, well, it gets worse because when you move Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC, here's, here's the new numbers. 
So after moving Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC, 59 SEC-only games qualify. Only two Big 12-only games, the, the 2015 Baylor-Oklahoma State game and the 2015 Baylor-TCU game. That's it. Are, so, the, are, the, are the Red River games the ones that are going over to the SEC there? The, the Red River games, and there was also an LSU-Texas game and an Oklahoma-Tennessee game. And so they, they would become conference games too. And so that's also why the Big 12's not in this alliance. That's why they're not even there. But the Pac-12 isn't that different. So this is, I mean, the Big 10 doing a lot of lifting to help the, the Pac-12 here. The ACC doesn't need it as bad. The ACC actually does really well in terms of non-conference games involving ACC teams that, that hit this mark, mostly because, oh, I don't know, Several of their teams have rivalries against SEC teams at the end of the season because there's some Florida-Florida State games, some uh, Clemson-South Carolina games in there. So they do better. But the ACC is actually helped in this regard by Notre Dame. There were five, uh, five games that, that were over 4 million viewers that were because of that Notre Dame-ACC scheduling agreement where Notre Dame came to the ACC team stadium. So the ACC TV contract makes that money. And it's, it's, it's wild. Notre Dame is better at this than the entire Pac-12. Yeah, well, the Big Ten there, which brings us back to the initial point, since you threw the numbers out, the Big Ten wasn't really that far behind the SEC, which I think is no, you know, obvious. You, know, you would think that. And I'm just trying to wonder, is this the Big Ten's response to making sure that they have some juice in this whole thing? Um to, to make sure but they, they have keep up. juice. That's, what, that's I what I don't understand. They don't have to do anything to have juice. They already have it. Well, a, a way to ensure that they have extra juice now that the SEC has gotten infinitely better, or at least more entertaining from a viewership standpoint. Yes. Well, and here, here's the thing that, that, I, that I didn't say. These 4 million viewer games, the SEC is going to make more of those now because, remember, Texas and Oklahoma are trading those eight – Big 12 opponents. Yeah, right. For the SEC. So you're going to have Oklahoma, Alabama. You're going to have Texas, LSU. You're going to have Oklahoma, A&M, Oklahoma, Georgia, Oklahoma, Florida, Texas, you know, Texas and, and Georgia. These are going to be big games. Plus, the SEC is going to add a ninth conference game, which just means there's going to be more of Auburn, Florida, uh, Georgia, LSU, uh, Texas, A&M, Florida, th- those games. Th- th- those, those are going to get played go more the charts. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, the SEC, we're sitting at, 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 if we move, you know, if we give Oklahoma and Texas's credit to them, 59 SEC games over a five-year period, my guess is that number is closer to 70 over the next five-year period, over the first five-year period that those right. schools are in the league. So, right. and, and that's, that's the issue is you just don't want to disappear. You don't want to get wiped off the map in terms of buzz and everything else. But I don't think that would happen to the Big Ten. Now, what this can do is the Big Ten can get their numbers pretty close to the SEC by saying, hey, let's get Clemson and Ohio State together. Let's get, uh, let's get USC and Michigan together. Let's, let's do this as often as we can. And I think that would be really good for, for everybody. So I think the average fan in – Tell me if you think I'm wrong on this, but the average fan, in my opinion, is not a fan of expansion, right? But the right, one thing correct. that expansion does provide or bring 
to the average fan TV is new, exciting matchups that you wouldn't otherwise see. And Correct. I guess watching Oklahoma and Texas go through a SEC schedule is going to be entertaining because it's going to be different. Now, if you do the schedule alliance where you have some of these big-time matchups, especially between the Big Ten and the ACC, I think that that's going to be great. Obviously, if there is a Clemson-Ohio State non-conference matchup or a Clemson-Penn State game or anything like that, North Carolina's on. I think the ACC is on the upswing. I think they have a chance of having five really, really good teams in the next few years. But the Pac-12, this will be new, and I think we'll see USC, Michigan, and games like that that will be entertaining up front. But I wonder, depending on how long this alliance lasts, that once it's not new anymore, I don't know that a Oregon State-Indiana game or a no. Washington – well, maybe Washington's a bad example, but or fun, Arizona. Fun, fun fact – there is an Oregon State-Michigan game on this list. It was Jim Harbaugh's home opener as Michigan's coach. That is funny. Uh, but the Big Ten is the reason for that, right? So uh, once you get past the newness factor of it, I don't know how exciting the matchups will be with Pac-12 Big Ten matchups because the brand of football would be a lower version of a Big Ten conference game. So it's just like I, I don't know why the two bigger conferences in this scenario are, are helping out the Pac-12, and I don't know if this is a long-term answer for the Pac-12's problems because if they're not good at football or they don't have interesting teams that can provide interesting matchups for the most part, then those games aren't going to be any different in three or four years than a, a game between Indiana and Michigan State already is. Does that make well, I sense? Th- I, I, I don't think the pac 12 is that boring a brand of I actually think the Pac-12 plays a fun brand of football. I think their games are eminently watchable. So oh, sure, sure, but the the brands of the teams aren't. Well, we're gonna I, I, we're gonna get a good test case for that this year because you have Washington, Michigan, and Ohio State, Oregon. So you, you're gonna have. But those games also involve two of the four like. biggest brands in that conference. Well, it's like if you I, I know, and you, eight, and you got to do that. You got. But, Here's the thing. There are big brands in the Big Ten that aren't Ohio State and Michigan. Like, Wisconsin-USC is a game I'd love to see. Wisconsin-Oregon, Wisconsin-Washington. Those, those are all good games. There, there's a, The problem is there's not enough at the top of the Pac-12. Yeah, that's the you, point you're I'm gonna trying have to, to make. Just, like, as long as yeah. you put Washington, Oregon, or USC into that equation, I absolutely agree with you. It's the bottom eight teams in that conference that I don't think will move the needle after a few years. Yeah, and you need it's Stanford Wisconsin, to get Oregon better. State People like Stanford. Is Wisconsin-Stanford a fun game to watch? Not at the moment, unless Stanford gets better. It would, I, is Wisconsin, it would have been Arizona a great State? game to watch. That Well, okay, Arizona State right now, I'd like to see them against – They, you know, they, they played a good series against Michigan State not long ago. Like I'd be I, cool with that. I guess the question would be this. It's not whether or not you would want to watch that game, because I would like to watch Wisconsin-Arizona. I would like to... I'm a different breed. We all watch it. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably watch a bunch anyway. But the question should be, is Wisconsin-Arizona State any more sexy than Wisconsin versus Iowa? That's a bad example. No, it's but it's not... Wisconsin versus Michigan State. It's not, it's not State. taking away from... It's not taking away from that, because they're not going to... They're not removing a conference game... As you're seeing, the SEC is copying Jim Delaney from 10 years ago. Jim Delaney, well, it wasn't 10 years ago. Remember, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were going to do a non-conference scheduling alliance 
the Big Ten canceled it because they wanted to switch to a ninth conference game. It was 2013 they announced, oh, never mind, we're not going to do that. By 2017, we're going to do nine conference games. Because Jim Delaney was smarter than everybody else and figured out this will create more matchups that are worth more for TV. And sure enough, it did. And that's that, that's why the SEC is doing it. It has nothing to do with competitiveness or, or, or trying to be fair. It's them trying to make more of these types of games. So here's I, I think the bottom line of this that that is being really undersold and it's not what you want to hear if you're a fan of the teams that are left in the Big 12. It's not what you want to hear if you're a fan of the Ameri- of, a, of a team in the American or the MAC or the or Conference USA. But if you're a fan of the team in the Big 10 or the ACC or the SEC or the, or the Pac-12, we are headed toward a future where there's 11 power conference on power conference games each year for every team. That's what we're headed good. toward. Yeah. That's, that's good. That's, that's a bonus. Yes. Um, I still am. I, I think I like it as a casual consumer of the sport. It's exciting because new matchups in different between teams in different regions of the country are always good. Uh, especially ones that aren't in meaningless bowl games. Um, but I just still don't know how much upside. It feels like the Big Ten is doing other conferences a favor to me. Oh, that's exactly what they're doing. And I, I, I'm not entirely sure why other than just trying to look like the good guy and, make, and paint the SEC as the bad guy, which you can do that all you want. But you know, I'm thinking about the, the playoff and the playoff proposal. Everybody says, well, you can't give the SEC everything at once in the playoff proposal. Well, the SEC didn't get everything it wanted. The SEC wanted eight at-larges in an 18 playoff. So that's not what they're getting. They're getting automatic bids because that's what the Pac-12 needs, and that's what the Big 12 needs, and that's what the American needs. And that's honestly, what the sport needs, by the way. Yeah. Well, and, and here's that's the thing. That's the whole point of if expansion. The, Why expand it if you're just going to give eight at-larges and six of them are from the SEC and the Big Ten? Yeah. If you're the Big Ten and the ACC, you want those at-larges. Your, your interests align with the SEC in this case. So don't – th- this is what I'm worried about with all of these guys, with the, with the Pac-12, with the ACC, and with the, the Big Ten. Don't get so mad at Greg Sankey that you do something that hurts your own league. You still need to act in your, own, in your league's own best interest. Don't get mad at Greg Sankey because he made the, the checkmate move that you didn't make. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. I also – am with the other four power fives as they exist right now in, in the way that the new playoff should and, and and would be best, right? Because the entire point of the expansion was outside of money, which we all know, is inclusion. And if you mm-hmm. did the at-large thing, then you would have a bunch of teams from the same conferences, mainly the Big Ten, but mostly the SEC, making it and playing games that we've already seen. So part of the playoff and the expansion and the beauty of this is getting the best team from the Pac-12 on the same field as a team from the SEC and getting a team from the ACC that's not Clemson in there and getting to see matchups that we wouldn't otherwise see in the current format. I don't need to see Florida LSU again. I don't need to see Alabama LSU again. I don't I think, think Florida and LSU want to see Florida LSU again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, But yeah, part of it too is just like, and that was kind of my discussion last year and the reason why the entire – uh, college Station Texas Town hates me is that I didn't need to see Texas A&M and Alabama again. You know, nobody. But we'd love to see Texas A&M and Notre Dame. 
Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, and that's but that would open an entire discussion of who else was was left out, I guess. But rematches are kind of fun sometimes. But I would rather see a brand new matchup against a team that we're not sure of what they can do because they haven't had a, an outlet or a platform to play a really good team from another conference get their shot. So yeah. I think part of the penalty of expanding your conference the way the SEC has done um, is also making it harder to get into the playoff, maybe. Because you have the more entertaining games, you have the better inventory for regular season, and those games still should matter and, and do matter. And being... what? How many SEC teams are going to get into it if there aren't at-larges anyway? Four on a regular year? Five? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not like they're going to be hurting for spots. They no, just don't need to take it, away it, the best teams from the Pac-12 spot because they want everything. Right, and they, they are fine with that. As long as they get more at-larges than there are now, they are fine with there being automatic bids. And... You know, the Pac-12 can complain about it not being an automatic bid just for them. You know, I don't know if they want to do the, the top. They sounds like they don't want to do the top six ranked champions thing that, that the proposal said. But we also don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the Big 12 now. Because their omission from this alliance is rather, I mean, that speaks volumes. Because like, what, is it, what, what does the rest of the Big 12 bring to the alliance? Because even in the Pac-12, there's still big brands. People still find value in the uh, USC, Oregon, and Washingtons. It's if you're in this alliance, you have to bring something to the table. Yeah, and I don't and, know what they this bring. This is also table. why, but but this also gives you an answer as to what would happen with the Pac-12. They've met up with them. You know, I don't see a a merger or anything like that on the horizon for them. And I also don't know if you're the Big Ten if there's anything in it for you to take anybody from that group. So and it means they're, they're sort of stuck together now, better or for worse. Somebody is looking for a favor. If, if any of the conferences that they exist right now are looking for a favor, which conference needs it the most? Well, the Big 12 needs it the most. Sons, right? Texas, and Oklahoma, and Oklahoma needs it, but the Pac-12 needs it too. I would say that the... Big 12, without their two biggest brands, needs it infinitely more than the Pac-12. Because I think yes. the Pac-12 will no longer be last in that scenario. And if the Big 10 is handing out favors, they aren't handing it out to the teams that need it the most. So they are getting, or the, the conference that needs it the most. So they are getting some brand value back. They are getting Oregon, Washington. Well, And they also have a USC. relationship with the Pac-12. I mean, right. that, that's the, they've been partners in the Rose Bowl forever. So that but makes like, sense. Honestly, I just, but if you look at it this way, Andy... The Pac-12 is receiving a favor from the Big Ten, but if anybody mm -hmm. really needed the favor, the Pac-12 and the Big 12 should be doing favors for each other, and that's not happening. I yeah, I think the Pac-12 is looking at it like we need help too. We can't be we can't be handing out help. Yeah, because if they combine their conference, or there was an, uh, a situation where you had those two teams or those two conferences combined. I just don't know if the Big 12 is bringing anything at all to the table. And that's how you find yourself in trouble, which they are. Yeah, this is and, – and we knew something like this was going to happen. We didn't know what the next move was going to be, if it was going to be another conference taking other schools or, or an alliance like this. And I still don't know what this is. We haven't really gotten the exact terms of the alliance. We, we don't know – 
if there's going to be a scheduling alliance, if there's going to be a, you know, is it gonna, would it be one non-conference game a year? I don't think it would be two non-conference games a year for leagues that play nine non-conference games. And also, USC is going to want to play Notre Dame every year. They're not going to want to mess anything up on that front. Stanford's going to want to play Notre Dame every year. So I, I just think they've got to they've got to figure this out. They, they've got to work out the details. But it what is I would telling. Ask you, who let me it ask is. you something. What would the alliance look like to you for the best fan experience? What's the, the best, best fan experience here? would be make the most interesting games you can. And so I want to see Clemson against Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State and Michigan State and Wisconsin. I want, I want Clemson kind of rotating through those teams. I want Oregon playing uh, Clemson and North Carolina and Florida State and Miami, uh, Virginia Tech. I want Washington playing schools like I mean you can get pretty creative with this. You think about the different permutations of this. You can go Pac-12 ACC, you can go Big 10 ACC, yeah. you can go Pac-12 Big 10. There's a lot of fun you can have What with do you do this. with the bottom half of these conferences? Are we going to get a Play bunch em. of are we going to get a bunch of Northwestern Oregon State games? Yeah, but that that's fine. That's still better than Northwestern and and Western Illinois. Yeah, as long as they're Power 5 on Power 5 as it exists now. That's better. Yeah, I, I still think that's a better experience for the season ticket buyer. Pro, I mean, the, the the casual fans never going to watch that on TV, but it'll get a bigger audience. I, that's the thing. Some of the audiences for these these body bag games are horrendous. Like even the SEC schools that do massive numbers when they play anybody in the FBS, they're the numbers are horrific. Like when Idaho plays at Florida, that is a horrific TV number. So not only do the fans at Florida not want to buy season tickets that include that game, nobody wants to watch it either. So ESPN doesn't want to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. I think that's all right. I, I wonder if they're gonna ever put Because uh, like I wonder too, is like if you use the biggest brands in those conferences and you put them on the field with bad teams from the other conferences if you can boost numbers uh, in games with could you spread it around more if you played Ohio you, State you can Oregon State it, it it depends on the situation but like i said there's an Oregon State Michigan game on that list because everybody was so excited to see Jim Harbaugh at Michigan Stadium for remember they opened Jim Harbaugh's tenure as Michigan's coach at Utah at night, uh, I believe it was an FS1 game. It was not a, it, it, it did a good audience for what it was, but it didn't do a huge audience. But they did a huge audience there because it was, remember that was the day that Oregon State played at Michigan and Oregon played at Michigan State and they were kind of back-to-back windows. That was the, that was the, the thing that, that people got pumped about. And so, yeah, you could do that, especially like Ohio State. There's a Tulsa-Ohio State game on that list, Ari. Four million viewers for Tulsa, Ohio State. And it's all Ohio State. So, yes, you could, you could send Wake Forest to Ohio State, and you will probably get close to four million viewers. Yeah. I didn't know if you were going to see a bunch of high, big brand teams playing lower brand teams to spread out the numbers and have big numbers in multiple games. Instead of playing Ohio the, State Clemson, I, you can play Clemson, Clemson Stanford, and you can play Ohio State uh, – Wake Forest and be done with it. Yeah. And just do that across I think the, in the board. 
I think in the middle you can have some fun too. Like yeah, Nebraska Virginia Tech's a fun matchup, and yeah. actually dovetails with what the, the discussion we're gonna have the rest of the show. I promise you on field talk. I think we've hit the the win totals and the the early season lines pretty hard. I want to talk about coaches that are coaching for their job. Nebraska and Virginia Tech, we're gonna they're gonna come up in that discussion. But that game, that matchup, Ari, that's a fun game. That's that's something I'd like to see. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I'm probably focusing too much on teams that are at the in the in the bottom, bottom, bottom. But I think yeah, games I mean, that involve Iowa. Those. Games yeah. that involve Iowa, Michigan State. Oh um, yeah. Those are all games that I think and they have passionate fan bases too. So this is fun. This is fun. I wonder if yeah, there will I, ever be an alliance that they could figure out a way to play four or five interconference games, but then you're starting to border on territory where it's multi, it's a super conference and you can't do that. I, then, then you're essentially merging your conferences. I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's what they want to do. I think you still want to keep the, the individual character of each conference, but just see each other. If, if, if two of the non-conference games could be, and I, and I think with the ACC, you still would have to stay at eight because remember, five ACC schools have to play a conference mandated game out of conference against Notre Dame every year. So they're not going to add a ninth conference game anytime soon in the ACC, I don't think. So you could have two there. They would still each get two, which, you know, if you're, if you're Clemson, if you're Georgia Tech, if you're, if you're Louisville, if you're Florida State, you, you've already got an SEC team on the other side of that one. But, yeah, if you could get, like, one Pac-12 school and one Big Ten school guaranteed on your schedule every year if you're the ACC and then kind of vice versa in these other ones, I think that would be, that would be fabulous. And would, would, a lot of, would anybody go, ever go undefeated again? I don't know. It doesn't matter with a 12-team playoff. The thing I am kind of interested in, though, is if you do one game uh... – and you have, I mean, I guess it's a little bit more, but all these programs, for the most part, have one really entertaining non-conference game on their schedule. So it's just, it's not that. Is it a really dramatic change in your mind? Because it's like we already have Oregon and Ohio State. We already have Washington, Michigan this year. I mean, these teams are already kind of. Well, I, I think if you want to make it, yeah, I think if you want to make it interesting, you make it two. Yeah, if you really want to make more. And this is this is how you help the Pac-12 and the ACC if you're the Big Ten by by giving them two, not by giving them one. Especially the Pac-12 needs this because they could more than double their amount of games that are in that four million club if they get two per team out of they this. They are alliance. making out like bandits in this whole scenario. It's oh yeah yeah this is. This is a good deal for them if that's what happens. Even if it's one game, it's a good deal for them. But something more, you know, more thorough would, would help them even more. So it, it really, I, I would assume, will be up to the Big Ten what it wants to do. And then they'll decide kind of for the other two how it's going to work. Because let, let's be honest, the Big Ten is the only league that can match up with the SEC now in terms of, of balance sheet. And, and look, they're going to probably split the same amount of money as the SEC schools are, if not more, when this next deal comes around, because it sounds like there's going to be not just Fox and ESPN in the marketplace. It sounds like NBC, CBS may be trying to make a bid at them. 
So the price is going to be very high for the Big Ten. And oh, by the way, they're probably going to be negotiating their rights within the next few weeks, months, because it's after next season that this runs out. One thing I wanted to bring up, and um, you tell me if I'm off on this, but when I first saw the headline, the first thing I thought was, if this comes to fruition or when it does, does that put a pin in conference realignment from going completely off the rails? From going off the rails, yes. It doesn't put a pin in it totally because something probably still has to happen with those remaining Big 12 schools. I don't know if they're going to if they would stay in eight team conference forever. Uh, I think probably either there would be some some consolidation there with the teams of the American or uh, I don't know who which direction that goes, who who cannibalizes who, but that seems like there would be a little more trickle down from that, but not anything super crazy. I've all, I've said the entire time the Big 10 holds the key to all of this. If the Big 10 wants to make a move and and take somebody they have the power to do it, but if they don't want to, they don't need to. They, they really don't need to. They would be strong and healthy at 14 and just fine. Because two weeks ago, we were sitting here and discussing like what the sport could look like in five years. And if this happens, what we might have gotten out of this is a really deep and fun SEC with two big brands and awesome games across the board in the regular season. And then when the playoff comes, awesome games at the end of the season. As much fret as people. Yeah. Now you're gonna you're gonna have you're gonna have some some morons who are gonna be like, I don't want a ten and two national champion. You know what you want? You want good games. We want more good games. So if that means that the national champion has two losses, I don't really care because I had fun along the way. I agree with that. And yeah, just there will be infinitely more inventory at the beginning of the year, in the middle of the year, and at the end of the year. And sometimes the the non-conference schedule can be, there can be a lull in it. You know, it's like, oh, we got to fight through all these bad games to get to the big ABC night game, uh, and that's the only game of the week. And it's just like in this new world of college football, there's more inclusion, there's more non-conference games that are interesting because they're between quote-unquote power five on power five. And then you have a playoff system that creates an opportunity for the winners of those games that were better to begin with to play again against other good teams. And then there isn't this huge yeah. reclassification of where teams are belonging to in terms of the conferences. There's still some sort of semblance, I guess, of of geographical affiliation. And also, it's kind of like the ACC Big Ten Basketball Challenge, except between three of the five current Power Five program uh, conferences. I think that's awesome. And I do think that this this alliance could yeah. be the thing that changes or saves the sport from going completely off the rails in terms of, well, is USC and Washington going to be in the Big Ten? It's like, no, but we're still going to get to see them play them, which is all we care about. Right, which is, which is if you put them in the Big Ten, why, why would you, if you're the Big Ten, why are you taking them? To match them up with Ohio State, match them up with, with Michigan with Michigan and Penn State, and Michigan State and Wisconsin. Well, if you can match them up with those schools and you're they're coming to one of your stadiums once a year or they're coming to one of your anyway. stadiums every other year, you're getting a lot yeah. out of that. Yeah, I think it's great. And I do think that there is a there is so, a certain beauty about college football in my opinion that takes geography and teams within a certain geographical region banded together 
to fight against the rest of the country. I think there's something great about that. And if we can preserve that as much oh, as I possible. Think that's, I, I think that's one of the biggest, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest draws of right. college sports. I think that, because there's no, like, NFC North fans don't band together. Like, they hate each other. Bears fans and Packers fans hate each other. They don't. They don't. They're not like, oh, we're so much better than the NFC South. It's just like in a world where the Big Ten added USC, it would be weird if the two best teams in the conference, one was from LA and one was from Columbus. <laughs> it, it definitely would be. Presents itself. So yeah, this this allows the regional flavor to stay intact. Which you're right. It is. I that is a a piece of the game. That if you lost it, you don't get it back, and it would be it it would be it would lessen the product. We need to move on, Ari, because this is crazy. We are recording this on a Sunday as as we speak. We're 13 days away from having probably a very strong opinion one way or the other about Scott Frost and or Brett Bielema. Those those two are playing on August 28th, Nebraska, Illinois, in, in Brett Bielema's opener as the Illinois coach, and and Scott Frost opening. I don't know. Is this a make or break season for Scott Frost? We're we're going to talk about coaches who are coaching for their job, and obviously Scott Frost is one that comes up all the time. Is this a make or break season for him, Ari? How quickly? It's funny because we're going to talk about Michigan too. I think, but. Yes, Michigan has held on to the dream pretty long. The dream of Harbaugh being the right guy. I think that... But Harbaugh was good for the first two years. No, no, that's, I know, but I'm going to get to the very point. different. I and Because I, okay. I'm going to try to relate it to Nebraska. And you can, if it's apples and oranges, then you can tell me. But although okay. Michigan was good the first few years under Harbaugh, they never attained what they thought they could be. I think that when Michigan started off strong in year one and was a foot away from beating Ohio State in year two, that there was a vision intact at Michigan that they would be a perennial national championship contender or that the level playing field with Ohio State would would one day exist again. And that hasn't happened. But Harbaugh was supposed to be the person who delivered it, and it hasn't been delivered, but the fact that there was a potential there with him and his name has helped them or has been the reason why the administration has held on as long as they have with him. If Jim Harbaugh was a coach that did not go to Michigan or did not have uh, Michigan ties or bleed uh, maize and blue, I think it's possible that anybody else would have been fired under the same exact circumstances with the same exact record. And Scott Frost, in the same scenario as that, was the quarterback who was there during the glory years who was supposed to come back and they he was the guy who was going to save them. It's very similar. Mm-hmm. Now, Scott Frost, I think, is what, 12 and 20 in his first 32 games or something like that? Right. He, he's, he's never, he didn't have those two first years. Because remember, you're right. 2016, the regular season ends with Michigan inches from being the Big Ten East champ, from playing for the title from potentially making the playoff. I mean, they were right there. Nebraska's never been close to there under Scott Frost. In fact, they had a better year two under Mike Riley. So I, it, this is 
this is the the issue and and i'm not gonna do the the revisionist history thing i'm like everybody else i thought this was a perfect hire i thought he'd be great there i i looked at what he'd done at ucf i looked at the way he'd recruited when he was an assistant at oregon it felt like a perfect fit and it just has not worked so the point i'm making is does scott frost have some of that harbaugh clinching to hope cachet where firing him is the is basically an admission from the administration that he's not the guy or does he have a little bit of a longer leash than somebody else might in the same scenario because he he's already gotten the longer leash sorry because the longer leash was last year mike riley was fired he's going into year four I, I don't know uh in year three was covid Okay, his AD's gone. The AD who yeah. hired him's gone. Let's let's that that's the part that I think. Now, Trev Alberts is the new AD, so if you want to talk about somebody who knows the history of Nebraska and and played for Tom Osborne just like just like Scott Frost did, so may, maybe you say, well, well, Trev would be more understanding, but Trev's also got a job to do. Yeah. So this is this is the thing. Regardless of whether you're both former players or not, he's not the AD who hired you. You've not done the things that, that they wanted you to do. So I would say they need to show pretty significant improvement this year to, to make sure he doesn't know. I, I don't think it's a case of, like, go back to the Bo Pelini days where you win nine and you get fired. That's not going to happen. If you win nine, they're, they're going to be over the moon. But you've got to show improvement. Yeah. And also, it's not just that they're losing games. During the same period of time, you've seen Northwestern make it to the Big Ten Championship. You've seen Indiana flirt with the Big Ten Championship last year. You've seen Minnesota have one of the best program uh, seasons in program history. And there are a lot of other teams in the Big Ten who have risen. I, Iowa's, Iowa. Iowa's yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah, it's not like yeah. they're... They're in a conference that's just dominated by two teams and nobody else is getting any better. But it's like even Rutgers has better early returns than than Nebraska has had. So I guess the question at the end of each coach that we visit on this podcast should be what needs to happen for him not to get fired. Okay, so I, I will start out with Frost. I think step one is really easy. Step one is you've got to beat Illinois. You really do. Because if you, if you lose to Illinois, and it kind of doesn't even matter how that happens if you lose to Illinois, your ceiling is 7-5 and five at that point. And you actually have to play pretty well to hit the ceiling. Because if you can't beat Illinois, you can't beat Oklahoma, you can't beat Ohio State, you probably can't beat Wisconsin, and you probably can't beat Iowa. So... That, but you still got to play Northwestern, Michigan, Minnesota, Purdue, Michigan State. Like, you got to be able to beat Illinois. Yeah, I guess you could just basically revise that and just say, win the games that you're supposed to win. And be kind of competitive in the games that you're not supposed to. Because there is also this difference between um, not winning, but also looking like you are. There's a look to it, right? It feels like something is off there, even if. You... Well, well, okay. Let, let me let me let me back you up there, though. Nebraska at Michigan State is that a game Nebraska's supposed to win? 
in its current in its current state or what it's supposed to be if Scott Frost is successful? Right now, current no. state. Maybe. Coin flip? Okay, Northwestern comes to you. Is that a game Nebraska's supposed to win? Coin flip? At Minnesota, is that a game Nebraska's supposed to win? I think the fact that I don't know the answer to any of these questions is a reason that this we're having this conversation. Yeah, it's that that's scary when you think about it because I hadn't really looked at it until I was I was doing a, a radio show last week and somebody asked me a, a Nebraska question and I, I looked at their schedule again just because I couldn't remember exactly how it fell. And if they beat Illinois, there, there's a good chance they go into Norman three and zero and have some nice momentum and they're feeling good about themselves and everybody's feeling good about Nebraska football. And even if you don't beat Oklahoma, some of that carries over. Some of that momentum probably carries through, through the, the middle of the season. If you don't beat Illinois, everybody's going to be down immediately. It's going to be just, you know, black out the windows, go cry in the corner. And then I don't know that you bounce back from that. Is there a question about whether or not Nebraska's going to win that game? I have no idea. They're seven-point favorites. I, I mean, I, I really don't because Brett Bielema is a good coach. I don't care how things ended at Arkansas. He won, what, three Big Ten titles at Wisconsin? He knows what he's doing. He knows what a roster that can win in that league looks like, especially when it's not playing against Ohio State. I, I don't – I'm not discounting that Brett Bielema has Illinois much better. Yeah, I think the good news for Nebraska is that they have some dudes. So, you know, they're in the, they I do. think if they lose that game, then you're in a big, big trouble. And I don't think it has anything to do with what the rest of the ceiling of their schedule is. I think the – Losing the opener against Illinois shows that we're back in business as things are are dysfunctional, and that I don't care how good of a coach Brett Bielema is, in one year to make Illinois a team that can beat Nebraska at home, that says a heck of a lot more about Nebraska than I think it does Illinois. Yeah, I, I think you're right, because hey, you know it's you asked me the question. Nebraska, as they should, when I was asking, you know, is this a game Nebraska should win for the other ones? Nebraska as Nebraska should be or Nebraska as now? The idea is to get Nebraska where Nebraska, and Nebraska should Nebraska is be. what it should and, be. And you and I are... are, they, are is that automatic wins on all those games you mentioned? Well, it's, uh, Illinois is not a question. Purdue's probably not a question. Minnesota, if they're pretty good, might be, might be tough. But those are, but then, but then beating Iowa comes into you know, the equation. Then beating, potentially beating Wisconsin becomes part of the equation. So if they're what they're supposed to be, and what are and they I'm supposed not, to be? I'm very realistic. Nine and three. They're supposed to be Wisconsin. They're supposed to be Wisconsin. They're supposed to compete for the West title every year. They don't have to win it every year. They're not going to be as good as Ohio State. That's okay. But they're supposed to be competitive in the West every year. You know, being Wisconsin is really hard. No doubt. And that's a perennial 10-year team, or a 10-win team. 
Yep. And that's, and that's the problem. But that, that is what Nebraska should be. That is a realistic ceiling for Nebraska football. And that is, is what it? they thought they were getting with Scott Frost. I don't know if I Frost, agree with that. And it's not what they got. Yes. I, I, I do. I, I think, I think a nine, nine-ish win team in a lot of years in that division is doable. Faux Pellini made the funniest tweet I've ever seen a few years ago. Um, it was September 3rd, and he, and he tweeted, Can you stop making this? This is not Bo Pellini day. Because it was 9-3. And <laughs> nine, I thought three. it was hilarious. Very nice. But I also think that 9-3 and three every year at Nebraska is the arrival. Like, if you would have asked yourself... Right when Scott Frost got hired at Nebraska, do you think we'll be talking about the Illinois opener four years down the road? You would have been like, oh, my God, something's terribly wrong if the answer to that question was yes. I know. I Listen, that that's what I thought when I looked at the schedule last week, and I realized how important the Illinois game actually is. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm on board with you. There's going to be a massive overreaction if they lose, but it, but I'm not sure it's really an overreaction. Yeah. No, 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 no. If they lose the Illinois game, I think it's perfectly in in play to, to overreact or to react proportionately to what that means. Because that's not just an uh, an indication that the team has kind of got some growing pains to get through. That's an indication that it's not working. Year four, I don't care about the COVID stuff. Year four, you should be at least nine and three. And I don't even know if they beat Illinois, if that's possible. Well, nine and three with that schedule is not easy. So... If they're if they're nine and three with that schedule, then by all means enjoy enjoy continuing to coach in Lincoln Scott Frost because you're definitely doing that. Uh, but it it's I would think even making a bowl at this point would be what's the record that he, that he but that's going to thinking seven and five is a keep your job record. I think at this point, I think you, you got to be careful cutting and cutting and running. Again, if there is improvement, if there's an upward trajectory. Now, look, if it's seven and five and they lose by 30 to Wisconsin and 50 to Ohio State and, and, and then lose by three touchdowns to Iowa, then no, you probably have to make a change. But if it's seven and five and they're close in, in a couple of those games and they're, you know, they're playing hard and they haven't quit and they, you know, they, they seem to be getting better, then yes. Use that trajectory to your advantage. Don't don't cut and run. Keep the guy and let him let him build on that. Yeah, I agree with everything that you just said. That's the first time I think I've ever heard that on a podcast. But I, yeah. I like it. I like I like it. Terrible. It's terrible for the podcast, but it's 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 great for my <laughs> ego. Um, we we mentioned Michigan, and this is a team that that plays Nebraska, and, and that October 9th game against Nebraska may be maybe a key date for Michigan. But you know, we, we talked about how hard it would be for Nebraska to get to nine wins. I'm looking at this schedule for Michigan, and woof, it's hard. It's it's really hard. I mean, so they start with Western Michigan. They get Washington in week two. That's one of those teams Phil Steele loves, by the way. Penn State and Washington are his, his two favorite teams this year. And when Phil Steele loves a team, you don't want to you don't want to play them week two. Yeah. Um, the toughest thing for me 
when it comes to Michigan has always been the same thing, Andy. And that is, what does the administration believe is success at that university right now? Because Michigan, for the most part, in their Jim Harbaugh era, when you don't directly compare them to their rival, has been a very good team by most standards of college football. They've won 10 games more often than they haven't. And if that isn't enough, then this is not the schedule to start to put him in a position where it's win now or go home. Because Michigan could be a really good football team for Michigan standards. It could be the second or third best Michigan team that Harbaugh has had, and they could still go 9-3 and three on the schedule. So when we have this discussion about... Which, if they're 9-3, and three, I think he's fine. I really do. I, I think that's fine. They, they have reduced his salary, cut it in half. To, to get what he was making last year, he essentially had to win the national title. Uh, they've made it where it's cheap to fire him if they need to. So, yeah, you have a season like that against this schedule. I think you are doing fine, especially after revamping the coaching staff. But here's, here's where I worry for them. Washington is going to be tough. That is a game they may not win. They play Rutgers to open the Big Ten schedule, and then they are at Wisconsin October 2nd. Ari, the, the scores of the last two Michigan-Wisconsin games, 49-11 Wisconsin and 35-14 Wisconsin, and some of the, the imagery from those games, the gaping holes that Wisconsin backs were running through. Like, that is, that is an example of what has to change or you have to do something different at Michigan. Like, if you can't keep from Wisconsin just blasting open holes against you, then you're going to have to do something else. When it comes to hot seat discussion, sometimes I think it's very easy to get bogged down into wins and losses and records, but there is a lot to the eye test in terms of is this team bought in? Yeah. How do you is win? this How team do you growing? Does this team believe in their coach? Um, does this coach seem to coach games the way that we want him to? There's a lot of other factors that are at play than whether or not you can win a game, especially in this crazy sport where it's not always that simple. And last year, when Michigan played Wisconsin, they didn't just get blown out. Their entire team gave up. And I think that is the reason why we began the discussions about the long-term viability of Jim Harbaugh and his position. So when I look at Michigan's schedule here, I see uh, two out of three against uh, Penn State and Ohio State to close their season. And then two weeks before that, they've got uh, a road trip at Michigan State. So at the end of October, things start to get really rocky. But the Saturday, October 2nd game at Wisconsin, I think we will know exactly whether or not Michigan is a different program than they were when they played Wisconsin last year. I think that is the the, the Washington game is yeah. going to be fun. It's going to be uh, entertaining. I think that we're going to learn a lot about both programs, both of which are in very critical junctures. But I think in terms of what it means for Harbaugh's future, the product in the Michigan that we get on October 2nd is going to tell the entire story of what we need to see here. Yeah, I agree. If they can be competitive with Wisconsin, I'm not even saying win the game. Be competitive, yeah, fight, fight them. them, then you can win every other game on your schedule except probably Ohio State. You can be exactly what you need to be. You, you, can, be, you can 
improved dramatically on last season. But yeah, if if you roll over again, then I think we have our answer at that point. I think it's funny that the standard that Michigan has to get to to for Harbaugh to keep his job and to instill faith in his ability as the coach is the benchmark of where he was for the first four years of his tenure there. That wasn't enough. So I think what you're seeing, too, is a um, recategorization of their, their expectations, of expectations down, which they probably should. Right. Yeah. And then if they are revising their expectations down and 9-3 and three and 10-2 and two years are acceptable, then Jim Harbaugh is the man for the job. If they want to demand more, if they want to be competitive with Ohio State, if they still believe that to be possible, and that they think that a different coach might put them in a position to do that, then I'm not necessarily sure anything else matters on the schedule other than how Michigan performs against Ohio State. So the matter is, what should Michigan be? And what are the fans and the administration going to accept in terms of what those expectations are? And my personal opinion, yeah, as you uh, know, I, 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 it's, last yep. year is that Michigan should be competitive in their rivalry game. And they're not. So my my well, so so yeah. This is this is the question. You're right. I hadn't thought about it this way, but it boils down to this: If you're the Michigan administration, and and if you're a Michigan fan, feel free to to answer this for yourself. And and there, I don't think there's a wrong answer here. Ari does, but I'm not sure there is a wrong answer here. Do you want to be competitive with, with Wisconsin, or do you want to be with, competitive with Ohio State? That is that is what you want to figure out. Which is the which answer of yes satisfies you? And if we're in the era of Michigan football where the answer is Wisconsin, then let's stop calling the Ohio State Michigan game a rivalry. Well, I think everybody else has already stopped. So <laughs> I think I mean I think Ohio know, State is still obsessed with it. Um, Ohio State well, I think is far more obsessed with it, with it more than Michigan it keeps is. them focused. Well, it keeps them focused and it keeps them tracking toward a very strong finish to their season. So uh, it works for them. Focusing on that works for them. But Michigan's got a lot of landmines in the way. And, and you know, they, they lost to Michigan State last year, and that's, that's a roster they had no business losing to. Mel Tucker's going to have that roster better this year. So that's a team that they're going to have to deal with. Northwestern won the West last year. Indiana as long as Tom Allen is there, is going to be is going to be good. They're going to fight their asses off, no matter who they're playing. And we don't know what at Maryland winds up being because Maryland has athletes; they just haven't ever really been able to kind of put everything together. If I were a Michigan fan, I would scratch, claw, and grasp at the idea that. Ohio State is my standard. And I would go back to the Brady Hoke years of being bad with the hopes of trying something new to achieve greatness. I think accepting mediocrity is the worst thing that you can do. And I personally, if I were a Michigan fan, would rather go 8-4 and four or 7-5 and five and have a competitive game against Ohio State than go 10-2 and two or 9-3 and three and lose 63-14. to 14. I would want to see closer growth to the potential of making that sacred game important again. And if you put your arms up in the air and say, you know what, we want to be the Wisconsin of the East and never play in Indianapolis, 
then that is giving up, in my opinion. I would demand more. Well, well, we're going to see what they demand. I think we're going to find out what they demand this year. I think we're going to get a really good good idea of of what their standards and expectations are by how they respond to this season. The number one defense of every Michigan fan in the before we just I just want to say this in the comments oh, okay. and when I used to get ang- when people used to get angry at me was, "Do you remember the Brady Hoke years?" That's the number one defense. Yeah. Jim Harbaugh just had a Brady Hoke year. It could be worse. Is is the is the defense right? But it can't be worse than last year, or at least it better not be. Right. All right. So we got to move on. We don't have a ton of coaches to talk about because we didn't think anybody was really going to get fired last year, and then there the pandemic did not stop anybody from getting fired. You know, I think when once Will Muschamp got got fired at South Carolina, we realized, oh, okay, this is probably going to be about as normal as it is. And then then you had Gus Malzahn at Auburn. You had Tom Herman at Texas. Uh, it was just a, a, a strange situation where you had big money buyouts getting paid. The pandemic didn't affect it at all. So there's there's not a, a lot of people who walk into this season that are walking on eggshells. One guy who is, I would say, is Justin Fuente. And, and Ari, the way that schedule opens up, either Virginia Tech is going to be pumped and back and excited and and ready to ride with Justin Fuente, or they're going to be out on him by the end of September. I said that I would, if I were an athletic director, that I could make hiring and firing decisions based on how well a team recruits, even more so than how they perform in games, and I think people think that's crazy. But Justin Fuente lost his job years ago, two or three years ago, when Virginia Tech's recruiting results dipped into the same realm as a lot of the powerful, uh, the Group of Five programs, I think if my memory serves me correctly, they had a recruiting class two years ago that finished somewhere in the 70s, and I think they're recruiting in the mid 40s now. And to me, we can get excited for games, and maybe that North Carolina game to open the season will be entertaining. Maybe Virginia Tech will win seven, eight games this year but they do not have the talent on their roster that they used to because their recruiting results have been terrible. So for me, if I'm an athletic director who understands how this game works, I look at the the way that this roster is made up and think, even if they have a a dead cat bounce this year, the long-term returns of where the Virginia Tech program is going to be based on how they've been recruiting so terribly I would have no confidence whatsoever for a rebound of what that program had been and what it can be in the future. And to me, I think it's already over. Well, I think the fan base, you know, the, Justin Hamilton, the defensive coordinator, put out a, a poll on Twitter in June, I think it was June, trying to get a new hashtag for this team. And it was, some of the choices were like, grit is it? And they're, you know, I forget, they were all basically built around the same Beamer ball type themes. And of course, everybody chimed in with fire Fuente as, as the hashtag for the season. So that, that didn't go very well. And Justin Hamilton wound up you know, kind of pouring out his heart right after that saying, how can you be divided like this? And, and, but they are. And, and I think for the reasons that you just mentioned, Ari, if North Carolina beats them in Blacksburg, the same way they beat them in Chapel Hill last season, 
I, I'm not sure there's any hope for Fuente. The the game I, I keep forgetting about that, that just jumps out when I look at the schedule is they're at West Virginia week three. Like The last guy I want to play against on his home field when I have never really been able to get my culture down and, and not really been able to, to get my team to play consistently is Neil Brown because yeah. he just eats teams like that for lunch. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be tough. You know, and I just like don't know. And then we can return back to the same question of what do you need to see out of Virginia Tech to be uh, happy with the results? Like, are there wins? They, like the I, win I'd total? say you got, you got to win the Coastal. Win the Coastal. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I, I don't know uh, if that's going to if that's possible, but they do have better recruiting results as things currently stand right now in the 2022 class. They have a few top 200 players. But Virginia Tech has always done a pretty good job of the DMV area. And, you know, Michael. they used to get the Michael Vicks of that area, and uh, now they don't uh, for the most part. And unless you're going to be recruiting, you know, Virginia, you know, Baltimore, in those areas at a high level, you're going to hit a uncomfortable ceiling. And that doesn't mean you can't be competitive in individual games, but it does mean that you can't reach the heights that, I mean, people forget how good Virginia Tech carried the ACC for a decade. And now they're kind of just like a forgotten entity in that in that entire conference. And I don't know if winning, <laughs> you know what? If if he goes out and wins the the coastal this year, then you know extend him. I guess I I don't know what I'm. But the returns of what you need to do to build a very good football program are right there on the twenty four seven page. And I know people think I'm too recruiting heavy and I'm too, you know, reliant on that when we're talking about individual games and gambling picks. And that actually might be a fair criticism. But when it comes to building a program, it's infallible, and they're just not doing it. Yeah, it, it, it is both. Both matter. You know, it, you can be the best developer in the world, but if you're, if you're bringing in recruiting classes in the 50s, you're going to struggle to win Power 5 conference championships. You just will. And you can be the, the worst developer in the world, and you, you bring in classes in the top five, you're going to fall ass backward into some wins. That, that's just how it goes. Right. And if you could do both, then you're Nick Saban or you're Dabo Sweeney. So that that's that's the part that that we everybody who's on who's got a team on one side of that's like well no the other one doesn't matter no they both matter they both matter probably probably equally yeah and so you you can't you can't let one fall so far and expect high level results so I think you're right that that's probably it. Ari, as far as the, the just the obvious guys who kind of enter the season, like, oh man, what am I going to do? There's one more obvious guy uh, that maybe we should spend two minutes on. Uh, Clay Helton. Matt Wells? Matt Wells or oh, Clay, Clay, oh, Clay, Clay Helton. Helton. We didn't talk about <laughs> Why? How, how could you have a we hot seat We talked about Clay Helton in our text before the show. It's it, I, I know what it is. We have talked about Clay Helton so many times, and we've had this conversation so many times over the years, that I just I feel like I should just pull a clip from two years ago. Yeah, I think people know the and score. And we just play that. They know the score. What is it? Okay. Let's, we do need to talk about this, though, because that is a, a premier program. We were talking at the beginning of the show about how important that program is to the Pac 12. And, and you know, if, if there's a scheduling alliance, getting to play USC is going to be a big deal for the, the teams in the other leagues, especially if it's a really good USC. So is Clay, Clay Helton the guy to make it a really good USC? One. Two, what does he have to do this year? To keep his job, because it feels like the the other guys 
you can kind of draw a line at some point. I, I don't know where the line is with Clay Hill. Obviously, if he doesn't make a bowl game or something like that, but they're, they're, they're not going to not make a bowl game. They're good enough to, to be a pretty good team. The question is, will they be good enough to meet the standard? Or I guess it's, it's more like your Michigan question. What is the standard? The funny thing about Clay Helton is USC and Oregon are in a head-to-head battle right now to be the king of the, the Pac-12. Now, that is where you want your team to be if you're a USC fan. But I think the real question of what USC should be when they've arrived is winning that battle with Oregon, and I would say they're in second place right now. Yeah. So what do you need to see? I think you need to see winning the Pac-12. And, and not just the division. This is the whole league. Yeah, you have to win the Pac-12 and maybe be a one-loss champion. And you might be a huge underdog on the field if they ended up playing in Alabama, as the most of the rest of the country would be. But they are athletically talented enough to win that conference. So obviously Clay Helton had one of the worst recruiting classes I've ever seen three years ago or two years ago. But last year, I think he landed three players who rated top the the number one player in the state uh, or in the country who in California uh, in the 2021 cycle. And they got the number one player in the country in Corey Foreman. And they locked down the Southern California border again. And they recruited a class with an elite level quarterback, and they had two committed at one point. From a recruiting standpoint, you know they haven't gotten back to the the recruiting levels that you would compare to Ohio State or Alabama or Georgia, but they've done more than enough to recruit a class and a, a type of athlete to win the Pac-12. So with Clay Helton, if you feel like you've at least addressed some of the recruiting concerns that were apparent a few years ago because he had a massive over overhaul of his recruiting department. Now you want to see if the guy can coach a football game or if he can put a team together that can mesh well enough with the talent that they have to be uh, competent. Because the thing that's been most frustrating, I think, for USC fans is that they've seen ultra-talented teams suck. So with Clay Helton, I would say that I'm not as concerned right now in his recruiting prowess. My, my concern is that he's more like Tom Herman, where he gets the guys, but he can't do anything with them or do what he needs to do to, to get to that level. So for me, if I'm a USC fan, I want to see them beat Oregon, and I want to see them win the Pac-12. That's the standard. And this is how that happens. Their line of scrimmage play matches their very explosive skill position play. That's it. Have a line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball that is as good as your skill positions on both sides of the ball, and you will win the Pac-12. Because their offensive line has been bad, right? It's it, it has produced individual good players. There have yeah, been Elijah first Vera, like Elijah yeah. Vera Tucker was a first rounder this year. Um, Austin Jackson was a first rounder. It's produced good players, but there haven't been great lines. And and the same thing on on the defensive line. They're just not dominant up front, despite having the kind of talent that you should be able to develop into being dominant. And that is where Mario Cristobal. That was the that was the what he found to exploit that that was the inefficiency in the Pac-12 that he needed to exploit the most talented team didn't play really well on the line of scrimmage Washington played really well on the line of scrimmage Stanford played really well on the line of scrimmage and so Mario had to beef up Oregon which already had explosive skill talent 
on the line of scrimmage to win the North. And now all of a sudden he's got a team that can clobber USC because it can beat them on the line of scrimmage and match them on the outside. Right. Yep. And so that's where, where Clay has to catch up. And he has this year to do it. I, I think you're right. I think the way you described it is is very accurate. And I realize that's it's probably asking a lot and and almost a little unfair. But this is a big paycheck we're talking about. Unfair doesn't really yep. come into play. Yeah, I think it's fair. I think it I don't think there's anything unfair about it. And the the USC ceiling isn't just taking the best players out of Southern California. It's getting the guys out of Seattle and out of Texas and recruiting like Alabama. There's so many players oh, yeah. leading mean, when, out of the Pac-12 Carol, footprint every year. When Carroll had it rolling, he'd go into Florida and get good players. Yeah. So, you know, right now I think step one is uh, take care of business in California, get the best players in California, then win a very winnable conference. Uh Maybe put yourself back in the playoff, then try to build something where you can recruit really good players from all over the country, but specifically in the Pacific uh, Northwest and in the Pac-12 footprint. Well, Ari, you've you've given them the blueprint. They'll, we'll see if we'll see if any of these coaches can uh, can take it and run with it and and continue to to bang those checks out for another year. Uh, this has been. Very interesting. I, we're going to have this discussion more as the season goes on because there will be guys who play their way off, guys who play their way on. The coaching carousel we thought was not going to be normal last year turned out to be fairly normal. I would assume it'll be very normal this year. So get ready. Strap in, folks, because we are not far away. The next time you hear Ari and I talking, we're going to be less than a week from the first game. It's, it's so close, you can taste it. Scott Frost versus Brett Bielema. Week zero. Oh, my God, it's happening, Art. Oh it's happening. Can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> we'll talk to you later.